1953, at the very height of his fame, the American playwright Arthur Miller wrote a play that was set during the Salem Witch Trials some 250 years earlier, titled The Crucible. He was also briefly married to Marilyn Monroe, which I think I was supposed to have a picture for, but I think we lost it tragically. But you'll just have to imagine what Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe on their wedding day looked like. Anyway, you may have seen this play at some point in time, or you may have read it in high school. It's pretty well known. The play centers on the historical figure of John Proctor, who, for this series of pretty complicated reasons, ends up being implicated and accused of witchcraft during the Salem Witch Trials in the 1690s. And he's sentenced to death, and although he's innocent, because he is carrying the shame of a secret affair, he's tempted to confess to the charges that have been laid out against him out of embarrassment, because he doesn't want to be seen as a martyr alongside the other people who don't have secret shame and have been accused. The logic in the play, the logic during the witch trials in this way goes that these other folks, these people that are not John Proctor, are making these principled stands. They've been falsely accused, but they are sufficiently righteous in their lives that by dying, that by dying they give the lie, so to speak, to what the town is doing in its persecution of them. John Proctor isn't that righteous. He comes close to confessing, if only so he won't be seen as a hero. Anyways, it's a bit complicated, I get, I get that. It's also, if you remember this from school, more or less uh, a commentary on anti-communism crusades in the 1950s, so there's that wrinkle as well. But in any case, in the end, Proctor refuses to confess, and he does go to the gallows a martyr. It's worth noting that neither the real accused witches in Salem some 325 years ago now, nor the characters in Arthur Miller's play were burned at the stake. Instead, all the witches were executed by hanging, accused witches, I should say. But the name of the play isn't the hanging or the gallows. The name of the play is the crucible, which begs the question, right? What is that all about? Well, it ends up still being pretty significant. A crucible is, if you, if you are unfamiliar, a ceramic or a heavy metal container in which a rock or some other substance containing a metal ore is placed and then subjected to extreme heat. And the idea of a crucible is that when the crucible gets hot enough, the metal inside, everything inside is going to melt. And when it melts, the metal, due to its weight, is going to sink to the bottom of the crucible, whereas everything that's not metal, all the other junk that's in there, the bits of rock, the contaminating stuff, all that's going to rise to the top, where it can get scraped off the top as dross. And the idea is that what remains then, when the crucible is cooled off, is this pure ingot of the element that you're after. So although the witches in Salem weren't burned, the point of the name of Miller's play, The Crucible, is that the events of the witch trials were a type of crucible, not just for those who were accused, but for the culture of Puritan New England as a whole. The accusations of witchcraft were the spark, and the self-righteous sham trials that resulted were the heat. 
And in that heat, what was melted down, what was scraped away. Well, John Proctor ends up a hero in the play because his pride and his shame are separated out from what his wife in the end calls, quote, his goodness, end quote. He dies, but he dies for the right reasons. Puritan New England, however, suffers a different fate. The dross of their culture ends up being their religious hypocrisy and their spirit of self-righteous judgmentalism. And both in the play and in real life, the Puritan movement dissolves within three decades of the events of Salem. So what does any of that have to do with tonight, right, other than the shared fire imagery, which is relevant. Well, I think it helps us get at not just what the story of the fiery furnace says, but the bigger question about why we keep telling it. Although on the surface it might look like a story about heroic steadfastness and confidence, I think it's really a story about how those things, heroic self-confidence, confidence, how those things end up getting burned off. And what's left behind in the crucible is purely and only this one thing. God is good. God is good. That's it. That's the pure ingot of metal at the bottom of the crucible in the story of the fiery furnace. God is good. So let's look at the story. All right. It begins with the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who in the previous chapter had been shown this horrifying vision by the Jewish servant, uh, by the Jewish servant and prophet Daniel, of his own eventual downfall. This is incredibly important, I think, to the fiery furnace story. In defiance of Daniel's vision, which centered on this crazy and brittle statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which you can see, if you ever want to, artfully recreated on our own Andy Guzik's forearm. Um, you may have seen it even when he was giving his announcements. But in any case, in this vision, Daniel sees this big statue. It's got these brittle feet, and the point is that the Babylonian king is going to fall because of, ultimately, his pride so his downfall has been foretold by this statue, and so it seems significant that in the very next chapter, what does he do? But instead of building a multi-metal statue with brittle feet like he'd been shown in the dream, he builds a giant gold statue of himself. As if to say this, that will show Daniel's God, who's brittle. That will show him. So the edict goes out. He builds the statue, and this edict goes out, and everyone's commanded to come and worship it. But as we pick up in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, we read this. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, etc., must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you've set up. So here's the setup in the story, right? We meet our heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And we also meet our villains here too, right? These astrologers who totally think on them to the king. And then we continue in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then this is the key thing, I think. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So here's the first bit of murkiness in this story. Unlike in other Old Testament stories, the king here is not just getting bamboozled by his astrologers who are secretly jealous of our heroes. We see those kinds of stories in other places. No, here, those astrologers who think on our heroes are a total red herring. They don't show back up because the king has his own agenda that's actually the center of the story. And this agenda has nothing at all to do with these three Jewish men. It doesn't even have anything to do with the loyalty of the people of Babylon. We see the tell about what he's really upset about there in the end after his threat. He says that when he executes these three young men, their God won't be able to rescue them from him. That's the real crux of the drama of the story. Not the steadfast faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the king's indignance after his ruin was prophesied by Daniel in the previous chapter. The fiery furnace, then, isn't their crucible. The fiery furnace is God's crucible, where God is being tested. But these three guys don't know that. They just get caught up in the middle of it, in the middle of a power struggle between a king and a god. So, what happens to them? Well, in verse 16, we continue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And so here's the second murky part. Even though these three guys have stumbled into a power contest that is way over their heads and has nothing really to do with them between Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Israel, they express faith not in God's miraculous deliverance of them, but in God's power to do whatever it is God wants to do. To seize on the crucible metaphor, what Nebuchadnezzar is picturing here is a scenario where what burns off in the fire is the Israelites' ability to believe in their silly, backcountry, no-statue-having God. God is the dross in his mind that's going to get scraped off. But what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say is that they are the dross. They're the dross. They might burn away in that furnace, 
But God is the real deal, and this test will only make God harder to deny. So here's what happens. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Which means that in this story, in the most literal possible way, God shows up. Nebuchadnezzar actually sees him walking around in the furnace. Which is a heck of an ending, I have to say. But it's also not the ending, of course. In the next verses, Nebuchadnezzar marvels at the Jewish God, and then... And then he does something strange, given what we've just read, right? For their bravery and courage, he lifts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up into leadership positions in Babylon, which is the third murkiness in the story. If the point was supposed to be about God showing up, why is the ending all about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? A month or so ago, I was thinking about what it means to testify to Christ in our daily lives. I want to clarify, I don't, I'm not a pious person who sits, you know, every morning and just thinks about what it means. Like, but in this event, I was doing that. It was in conversation with some people who were talking about this. What does it mean to testify to Christ in our daily lives? And I was personally convicted at the time of ways in which I had begun to realize that I was not doing this thing, that I was not testifying to my faith in Christ with my daily life. And this was happening particularly at home with my family. So this is a few months ago as we're leading up to relaunching here at Heritage, and I had been overtaxed here at work in the month leading up to this, and I had started treating my time at home as a chance to kind of just let myself go and to be indifferent to the needs of others and selfish. You may have been there in your own life. I hope so. I hope I'm not the only person that's ever been stressed and then, and then just treated my time at home like my time just to do whatever I want. I was constantly annoyed in this season with Meredith, my wife, when she would ask me to do anything beyond what it was the normal things that I would do. Any extra chore, no matter how mundane, made me mad. I was finding myself easily irritated whenever there was drama with the kids. In short, I was being a grouch, and I was starting to feel convicted that I wasn't seeing my time at home as a time when I should be living out my faith or living out my testimony. But all of this was at odds, I felt, 
with what I had always grown up hearing about this idea of testifying to my faith. I had grown up thinking that what that meant when we talked about being a testimony or, or giving testimony to the God that we believe in, that this was really mostly about telling my friends or my coworkers about Jesus and inviting them to come to church with me. And what I realized, what I realized was that I have grown up looking for the wrong crucible. I thought the test of my faith and how I lived it out was about what it revealed about me, what kind of person it proved me to be. But the truth is that the test must always be about who is revealed in me, not who I am revealed to be. I'm not trying to say that we should not tell our coworkers about Jesus, but what I am saying is that living out our testimony is so, so much less about who we invite to church and so, so much more about what dross burns off in the crucibles of our lives and what gold is left behind in them. I don't care, really, if you tell people about Jesus. I care if you testify to Him. If under stress, Jesus is what comes out in you, if your life reveals this kind of pure ingot of the God that we worship, if who Jesus is and what Jesus teaches and how Jesus loves is so much a part of the core of you, the core of who you are, that other people see it in you, whether or not you ever say it to them at all. By all means, say it. Go ahead. I'm not saying you can't say it. But tell people. Use your words. That's great. Invite people to church. Do all that stuff. But, but, honestly, honestly, if you are not actively wrestling with how your relationship with Jesus is currently affecting your life, if you are not in this moment actively wrestling with how your relationship with Jesus is changing things in your life, it would probably be better if you did not go around claiming the name of Christian, actually. You're doing a lot of harm for the rest of us. And that's a hard thing to say, and the kind of thing I rarely say here, but a true thing to say. We need to be people wrestling. We need to remember that the crucible isn't meant to reveal us. The crucible is meant to reveal Him. So, what do we learn about God and who God is in this story? Well, we learn He's the gold, right? He's the pure and the real thing that's really there. He's powerful, incredibly powerful, and He's here, actual, real, here. And what do we learn about the ways that we should live in the world? Well, I think we learn that we're supposed to reveal Him through our lives, not reveal our true selves through our lives, which is, I think, how we often think about it. We're supposed to reveal Him with our lives, not just reveal ourselves. If the ending of the story that we imagine for ourselves is one where we are the ones who have proven our faith or where we are the heroes or the martyrs, then we are getting caught up in the wrong story. And what do we learn about the way things are in the world? I think we learn that the big thing we, and perhaps all people, 
are afraid of believing is that God is really there and that He is really God. If we let that truth take root in us, then it's going to do all kinds of stuff to the ways that we see ourselves. Because if there is this actual, powerful, and then also somehow intimate, divine God out there in the universe, then I don't have to covet control in my life, which I tend to. If there really is that kind of God out there, then I'm not even the center of the story. I'm not even the center of my own story. I'm not the protagonist. In fact, I might be the dross of the story. If I'm tossed into a fiery furnace, that God, God has no obligation to show up and save me from that because I don't need to be here for the next chapter. He does. But the point of the story is that as scary as that is to realize that I'm not the main character of the story, but God is, and that that means I'm not even necessary to the story. The point is that when we realize that, the other side of it, that thing that's revealed in the actual story is that God is not just real, He's also good. He doesn't have to be, but He is. He's real and good, unfathomably good, beautifully and wonderfully good. He tells the truth. He's the source and inspiration for every bit of love that we know of in the world, from romantic love to the love of a parent for their child to the love that your dog has for you when you walk in the door after being gone all day. All of that, that good stuff flows out from the very character of God. Will He save you from a fiery furnace? Who knows? But His power and His goodness will be easier to see in the crucible because they're there and they're undeniable. So it doesn't actually matter if you get burned or not, no matter what. You are in the hands of a God who loves you more than you love yourself and who is good, even if you can't predict or anticipate what that goodness is going to look like. So we trust Him, not because He's going to do what we want. We trust Him because we have seen Him to be good. The fiery furnace is the story of surrender, not so that you can be the hero, but so that you can reveal the hero with your life. It's a story about confidently trusting that whatever happens, a loving God is never going to abandon you. You're okay. More than that, He says that you are uniquely loved. And maybe, I think, if we hold on to that meaning in the story, we can better understand that initial question we asked about why in the world the Jewish people, from the vantage point of being exiled and enslaved in Babylon, keep telling this story to their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. They're saying with this story, we too are in a crucible. We too must say, the God we serve is able to deliver us. But even if He does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods. 
The point isn't to go to our graves a martyr. The point is to refuse to believe a lie, even if that lie is convenient to believe. You know what's true. God is God, and He is good. What He plans and what He wills in your life are going to reflect His character. So no matter what the risks are that we face, we can safely trust Him to reveal Himself as loving and good at the heart of our stories. So what does that mean for your day-to-day life this week? I think it means that we can spend less time looking for ways to prove our faith and more time investing in the faith that our lives prove. Are you letting the dross burning away? I'm sorry, are you letting the dross burn away? Things in your habits, in your routines, the ways that you spend your time, the ways that you interact with other people. Are you pursuing godliness, not just as a kind of behavior, but as a deep belief in the goodness of a real and a wonderful God? Invest in that awareness. Invest in the kinds of things that help you become aware of who God is. Things like prayer and communion and worship and loving relationships with others and paying attention and petting the dog when he comes running in to the room. As the characters in the play, The Crucible, might say, find your goodness, not in the self-righteousness of your performance, but find your goodness in the eternal value that God has given you through His love for you specifically. That's your goodness. Allow yourself to feel that love and do what you can to help others feel and discover that love for them too. There's a few more sentences, but I promised you guys we're going to cut that last two minutes. So we're going to pray here at this point. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us. This is the true thing. This is the most important true thing. You are there and you are good. It is scary to trust in you. It is scary to let go of the desire to control our own stories, but God, you reveal to us, not just in this story, but in story after story after story in your word, you reveal to us that this is what we're called to do, to surrender the desire for control in our lives to you and to trust you to be good. And God, I just pray that you will help everybody who's here in the room tonight do that. Little by little, not in some giant, big sweeping decision that that, that we think is just going to be a one and done type thing. No, God, but that you will help us to do this little by little every day. That you'll help us to grow in the ways that we let go of the desire to control our stories and trust you to be good to us because you love us. God, teach us that surrender help us to grow in it. We love you. We're trying to love you more. And we trust you. And we're trying to trust you more. In your son's name.